0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, friends, if you have not been around Awaken during the Advent season, you have missed one of my favorite series that we do every year, which is called the Advent Art Series. And so uh, we have a lot of really talented folks around here uh, as it relates to the arts, and we want to bring that into our gathering. For a long time, the church has sort of exited the art community stage left or right, and we just say that's a real miss, and we want to welcome it back. Um, And so, in Advent, we ask our artists to write and create uh, two artists each week on the themes of Advent, so themes of waiting and of darkness, of longing, of hope, anticipation, uh, and then to share those as a part of our gathering. So I would like, if you would, please welcome our artists this morning, Steph Gullifer, and in just a moment, Joe Madsen.
1: Good morning. To stand in front of a large body of water is breathtaking. Watching the waves as they move, move as if they're breathing captivates me. I could sit and watch that for hours. Lake Superior is one body of water that really gets me. It draws me in. Standing there, one can feel really, really small, but at the same time feel an overwhelming sense of belonging. My mind cannot dismiss God's role in this. After all, he created me, and that water. This was painted from an experience one summer night on the shores of Lake Superior. The moon was so bright and quite possibly the largest I had ever seen it. I actually didn't know for sure if it was the moon at first as I watched it rise from the horizon. I sat there and just stared. See, I love the process of things, seeing the nothing become a something. Change is always happening in us and in things around us even when it takes time and we have to wait. It was only a matter of minutes, maybe ten, before the moon started to get smaller and smaller the higher it went into the sky. About then, my eyes were drawn from the moon to the reflection of the moon on the water. The waves were still breathing, and the light continued to shine down. The greatest area of light overtook the size of what it was reflecting from. That light, which to me represents the love of God, is in me to my core. It is my hope. It is my prayer that my life can expose what captivates me deep inside. See, we cannot see light without the darkness. We cannot not acknowledge the light when it's there. We cannot ignore it. Without the darkness, it wouldn't be there. There is hope this Advent. Please welcome Joseph Madsen, our writer for this week.
2: Hi. The beauty of fiction is that it allows both the reader and the writer to experience events and emotions that they may not have yet faced in life. I have not gone through what I'm about to share, but this is the story that developed as I thought about the themes of Advent. (laughs) Waiting room. I should really turn on a light. My phone has been the only illumination in this room since the sun went down an hour ago. Whenever the screen times out and goes dark, I immediately press my thumb to the glass like a first responder checking for a pulse so that it lights up again. I can't stop checking the time. It should be over by now. I had promised I would be with her the whole time. I couldn't even tell her where I'd be since she was already prepped and in another room when the doctor told me I had to wait outside. I thought this waiting room would have an automatic light. At the very least, I would have assumed that a custodian would come by and turn it on. Maybe no one knows I'm in here, in the dark, waiting. I'm supposed to get a call as soon as my wife is out of surgery. I check my phone. The doctor told me my wife is going to be okay. She said there's no reason to believe the surgery won't go smoothly. What about our daughter, I had asked. That's why we're here. We can't make any statement about her condition beyond what we already know. We're doing what's best for both of them right now, she replied. My phone tells me that brief conversation happened one hour and 12 minutes ago. It feels like a blink and it feels like an eternity. Then again, time has become completely irrelevant to me since they diagnosed our girl with fetal distress two days ago. My world stops turning. The sun froze in the sky. I wanted to run and scream and explode. Instead, I gripped my wife's hand and stayed as calm as I could. My voice shook only a little as I asked what fetal distress meant. It is a terrifyingly vague-sounding term. Fetal was obvious, but distress could mean anything. My wife's OB explained in a calm, even voice that it meant our daughter wasn't receiving enough oxygen. It could be potentially treated several ways, all else failing the baby would have to be delivered by emergency C-section. All else failed, and here we are. Here I am. And somewhere, thousands of miles away, down the hall, a group of strangers endeavors to save my little family, to deliver my baby girl safely into the world. There is no arrival more anticipated than that of a newborn baby. No king was ever greeted with as much joy. These words pop into my head. I don't remember if it's a quote or if my brain synthesized them from the books my wife and I have been reading for the past eight months. If it is a quote, I decide the second half will go something like this. There is no concern greater than that of a powerless parent. The door opens and the light snaps on. I can't tell who is more startled, me or the custodian who didn't expect someone to be sitting in this dark waiting room. I'm sorry, he says in a thick accent. I will come back. His hand hesitates by the switch. Do you want the light off? You can leave it on. If I had to guess, I would place him from East Africa. I think about explaining myself, why I was sitting in the darkness alone. Instead I say, you can clean, it won't disturb me. Now that I have another person with me in this waiting room, I suddenly don't want to be alone. He gives a quick smile and pulls his cart the rest of the way into the room. The room looks fine to me, but the custodian quickly proves it can look better. The jumbled stack of magazines becomes an even fan across the table. The trash can gets addressed and a few crooked chairs are straightened back into rank. He quickly and calmly transforms the room with precise adjustments and with its transformation, I feel the jumble of worried thoughts smooth out in my mind. Is this what peace feels like? Finished, the custodian pushes his cart to the door and opens it. I know I can't express to him what his presence did for me, but I clear my throat and say, thank you with all the sincerity I can muster, hoping part of my message comes through. He pauses at the door and replies, assalamu Alaikum, and then he is gone. When the door closes, I fight, ang- fight against the anxiety that rushes back, threatening to overwhelm me. I'm still waiting for the doctor to release me from this purgatory. It strikes me that I've been given a blessing of peace from another man's God, before I even thought to ask for peace from my own. I know many of my worries are the fragments of prayers shattered by the impact of the news about our daughter. Inspired by a man I'll never see again, I gather these prayer shards together. In this new, clean space, I begin to reassemble the maelstrom of anxious thoughts into a coherent prayer. This is what peace feels like, and with it, hope in a good future returns to my soul. While the themes of the Advent experience are words like waiting, anticipation, longing, and even darkness, I invite you to feel the tension between these words and the arrival of hope, love, peace, and joy.
0: Does anyone feel like they're not winning at Christmas this year? You know, like hashtag not winning at Christmas, a few of you. A few days ago, we were in the car driving home, and our kids began to to talk about their Christmas experience this year, and it was clear to my wife and I that we were not winning this year. One of them's like, the Christmas tree's in the wrong place, Dad. Why did you put it there? We never put it there. We've lived in this house for three years, so we've done it the other way twice. And now we've never put it there. It goes in our front room, typically the two years previous and this year I was like, it takes, you gotta move couches, you gotta move all kinds of stuff, like let's just put it in the piano room and we put it there and then we sort of lacklusterly, if you can say that, decorated the tree, it was sort of like, yeah, go ahead, put whatever you want up there. It wasn't really a family event, I'll be honest. And there's really, we haven't really done any Christmas cookies and so the other day we're driving home and they're like, this Christmas has been terrible, Dad." So if any of you feel like you're not winning at Christmas, like, come find me. We'll have a little powwow. We'll get together. It'll be fine. But I did see um, Star Wars. Anyone see Star Wars yet? Yeah, these are 3D glasses. I'm going to be preaching the rest of the sermon in 3D. (laughs) It's going to be awkward, so I won't do that. No, uh, it was a great movie, though. You should see it. No spoilers for me, I promise. Luke chapter 2. Episode 8, Luke chapter (laughs) 2, that's where we're going to be, Luke chapter 2, Advent, Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. I don't know if you know that or not, I didn't grow up in a liturgical setting or or church and so the church calendar didn't really mean anything to me. I learned later in life that the church calendar does not start in January, it starts in actually sometimes November, this year December, It's it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving that Advent begins. And Advent is the start of the whole thing. And fascinatingly, during the coldest, at least for us in Minnesota, which is an added bonus for us because we really feel it up here, people who live in you know, mild climates, they don't get Advent like we get Advent. Can I get an amen? amen? So it's the coldest time of the year, but it is also the darkest time of the year. December 21st is the winter solstice. It's the darkest day of the year. It's the least amount of light. And so Advent begins the story of the Bible in the cold, and in the dark, and it moves slowly towards more and more and more and more light until, of course, we get to Christmas and a light comes into the world, and Isaiah chapter 9 and 11 start to make sense about a people who have walked in darkness and great despair have seen a great light. So this is Advent, and we've been looking at four canticles, that's a song, the four songs of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2, there are four songs, Mary's song, it's known as the Magnificat, uh, last week, we looked at Zachariah's song. It's known as the Benedictus. And this week, we're looking at Simeon's song, which is known as the Nunc Dimittis, or if you want to call it the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dim... dim-, dim- di- it's Latin. And uh, it, these, these titles are the first words in Latin of each of the songs. And so this one is, Now you may dismiss your servant who has seen the Messiah. So the Nunc Dimittis, or Dimittis, or So Luke chapter 2, stand if you will, we'll read the scriptures, and then we will dive right in. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22, reads this way. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. that what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we gather, we do so around this story in these scriptures, and I pray that they would be what you say they are, um, that they would be alive and active and a fresh word of hope for us this morning. Uh, Wherever we've come from and whatever we've carried into this room, whether it be faith or doubt, questions or hope, I pray, God, that um, your story and your words, uh, you would use them, you would pick them up, you would use them to reveal yourself to us in a very real and powerful way, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. And so if you don't have a bulletin, you're going to want one. Um, There are some up here and there are some in the back. Um, Maybe uh, Joan, would you just like, or John, will you just walk down the aisle? If anybody doesn't have one of those, wave and John will get one to you. Um, On the front of the bulletin is an icon. This comes from the Orthodox tradition. And if you've ever seen icons, they often look similar, similar colors and hues. But it's the Advent Art Series, for crying out loud. And so what I want to do is take this... Icon, which is actually um, it's anonymous. We don't know who drew it or painted it, but I want to look at this picture and the author's intent, or at least how they're telling the story. Uh, This is the depiction of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and Simeon and Anna at the temple, and I want to look at this and draw just a couple of things from it and um, what I interpret the 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 author's intent to be, and see if it doesn't uh, draw us into this story in a way that maybe uh, if we didn't have it. Um, we wouldn't be able to access. So that's what I want to do, and the first thing I want to notice is the color. Um, If you look at Mary and Joseph, they are clad in red and blue. In icons, red and blue are symbolic of heaven and earth, and so if you imagine an author, a painter, who's trying to communicate that in this moment of Jesus's birth and him being dedicated at the temple, Heaven and earth are coming back together. The hopes and the dreams of God, which we might call heaven, and our experience of earth are coming together in this moment, and they're being woven into the same story. And so whatever divorce or whatever distance one may have felt, may you see that in this moment it's coming back together. And even if you look at the look closer... Um, like adorning the temple arches, it's red and blue. So it's even filling into the structures of worship of God's people. The altar itself has this red and blue kind of herringbone pattern. So it's all over the painting of heaven and earth coming together in this moment. And these are symbolic, right? Uh, In the coming of Jesus, it's being brought back together and saying salvation is for the whole world. It's for everyone and everything, uh, the book of Romans talks about the fact that the earth itself is groaning, it's waiting for redemption. And when we talk about the good news of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, often it's that I, God came for me and my sins are forgiven, so I get to go to heaven when I die, which I wouldn't disagree with, but I would say it's just really, really reductionistic. There's so much more to this story. That the whole world, the cosmos, all of it, the galaxies in a far, far away land where Luke Skywalker is, like all of it, right? It's all a part of the story and it's all a part of this redemptive movement, this moment of Jesus entering the world. So it's big. Simeon in verse 32 says that Jesus' coming has brought about a light for the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. What's being said in this moment? What's being said in that? Often when we think about help coming, If you're like me, we think about ourselves, and we think about help coming to me and my people and my family and whatever I'm in need of, and that comes to me. And that's just human behavior. Sociologists will tell us that's ego and self-preservation, and we think we're the most important things on the planet, and that's a good thing for most times. But when it gets Woven into religion, and you—if you read Israel and you watch how they respond to and interact with and posture themselves in a response to this promise of God that you will be blessed, so that the entire world will be blessed—they miss it sometimes, oftentimes. And like many of us, it's—it's it's a desire, it's help that's coming for us. And this is no more clear than when Jesus arrives. This is a period of time called Second Temple Judaism. The first temple has been destroyed. The second temple has been re-resurrected, and now this is the time period in which the Gospels are written. Second Temple Judaism, and if you study this, you know that there are all kinds of expectations about what would happen and what it would look like when God came, and it was mostly about God returning to Israel, God coming back and restoring Israel, God saving Israel, God redeeming Israel. And so the help would be for me and for us, if I'm Jewish in the first century. And Luke is saying it's bigger. This icon is saying it's bigger than that. One author says, Simeon has grasped the truth at the heart of the Old Testament, that when Israel's history comes to its ordained goal, then at last light would dawn for the whole world. This will be true. This will be the true glory of Israel to have been the bearer of the promise, the nation in whom and from whom the true world ruler and king would arise. And of course, this is not the sort of revelation or the sort of glory that Israel wanted or expected, but it is glory and revelation nonetheless. Jesus is not just for Israel, which we say now and we're like, well, yeah, duh. Jesus is not just for you. Jesus is for your neighbor. Jesus is for your enemy. Jesus is for the annoying person three cubes down. Jesus is for your parents who are no longer present in a part of your life. Jesus is for the people who have hurt you. Jesus is for the group of people you think is on the outside. Now, am I getting in it? The story is bigger. The table keeps getting bigger. More people keep getting invited. It's for the entire world, all of the people who inhabit the planet and maybe others who don't inhabit the planet. I mean, let's be honest, right? That's possible. It's for everything and everyone in and through this moment, this person by faith in Jesus the Christ. So I want to stop this Advent and just remind you, as we look at this picture and we think, what is it representing and who is it for? It's for any. It's for all. Glory has come to Israel, having been the bearer of the promise, but a light has been shed to all, for all. Notice even Jesus' posture in the painting. If you look closely, Jesus is leaning out out of Simeon's hands, but he's looking back at Simeon. He's leaning into the piece of uh, the the part, the portion of the painting which occupies the largest. It's just space. In the middle of the painting, like, what is most central is space. Space between Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna. And Jesus is sort of leaning into that space, inviting Simeon and Israel, like, Hey, it's not just for you. Come with me. We're going beyond the bounds that you think exist. And it's, that's what it's for, and that's where it's headed. Come with me. It's for any and it's for all. So maybe a reminder to us this morning... That this story sometimes gets insulary. It gets turned in on whatever is happening in my life and my needs and my family or our country and our politics. And it's just so much bigger than we ever could have imagined. It's for any and it's for all. The second part uh, that I want to reflect on are the expectations of the people in the painting, right? You have Mary and Joseph and then you have Simeon and Anna. You have two kind of groups of people And this painting and this this Advent story sort of brings into precise clarity some questions about our expectations. Like, what do we expect God to look like when God comes? What do we expect God to act like if God were to act in the world or move and, and do something? What would we expect God to say if God were to speak? Again and again in the scriptures, if we read them carefully, we see that the unexpected character in the unexpected place in an unexpected way gets the message. They get the news. It's the shepherds. It's a teenage woman who's not married who brings this this gift into the world. It's tax collectors and prostitutes, the blind, the shepherds, the Syrian, the Roman, the Samaritan, through a donkey, a rock, through quail in a desert, through death, through a baby, it's unexpected, and this story and this icon say it again. The offering that Jesus or that, that Joseph is bringing. If you look really closely, you can see Joseph has something in his hands. it's two birds. In Leviticus chapter 12, you would know if you've read this, that when a woman in Israel, uh, an, an Israeli woman has a baby, there's a way by which they go through a process of coming back into like a normal life in the community. Because a woman has just touched a very powerful nerve in the, in the universe, which is the ability to participate in the giving of life. And that is massive so think about these rules and regulations as a, in a different way. That if you have touched something that divine and you have participated in something that extraordinary, that you might need a little bit of time to process and sort of come back to normalcy and to normal life in community. And so, either 30 days or 60 days, depending on whether you had a boy or a girl, which is a sermon for another day, you would process this experience and then you would bring an offering, a gift, to the community in worship, to say thank you to the God, to the divine, who allowed you to process and participate in this moment. And so that gift was a one-year-old lamb and two birds, turtle doves or pigeons. But there's a provision made for the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, who couldn't afford a lamb, that they could just bring the birds. And so what we see confirmed in this icon and in the story over and over again is that Mary and Joseph are the poorest of the poor. They are at the bottom of the ladder. They are socially, like, all the way down. It's only going up from there. The king of the universe shows up to the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the people on food stamps and wick. That's where the story begins. Does that just blow our minds? If it doesn't today, it should. It's like we live by the ocean and we stop hearing the waves. This story is unbelievable. It's extraordinary. This is the mystery and the just absolute unbelievable nature of this story in Advent. That it comes to these people, the poorest of the poor. Unexpected people in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. Like, when you think about God and God's activity in the world, if we're going to develop the capacity to see and hear God at work in the world, where do you expect to see God? And friends, if we think it's among the rich and the elite and the powerful and those who have the upper hand, the scriptures would argue that you're looking in the wrong place. Now, that's not to say that God isn't with the rich and the powerful and those who have resource. The question there is, how does one use its resource and is it in tune with the way of God in the world? But if we're going to just, if we're going to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, if I'm going to ask myself the question, because often when I'm looking for God or when I think God is going to act or speak, it's not among the lowest of the low. That's not very, like that doesn't sell. It doesn't make sense. And so I would just challenge you this morning, if you're thinking about what would God look like, sound like, act like, if God were to speak. This story is a reminder that it's probably in the unexpected places. So whoever it is you think is out, I would say start looking there. Whatever the circle is that you've drawn to say in and out, just go one click beyond that and see if you don't find God at work among some of those places that you don't think God is working and moving and speaking. In the people that you've written off or that you've said, we're done, is it possible that in the unexpected places and in unexpected ways God might be moving this Advent. An invitation to you to consider that, to maybe look, to maybe have ears to hear and eyes to see in those places. What I think is also interesting as it relates to expectations is, and we don't talk about this a lot because it's existentially pretty difficult, is the fact that Jesus' coming doesn't answer all of the questions. Jesus' coming doesn't fix all of the problems. When Jesus comes, Rome doesn't say, peace out, we're gonna head back north. No, they're there. They're occupying the land. They killed Jesus himself. It doesn't get any better for Israel for a very long time, if not forever. So how do you hold hope and the dreams of God and the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises to Israel in this moment of Jesus and yet Israel is still occupied by the Roman Empire? How do you hold something that you believe to be true, I affirm this story as true, that in Jesus the hopes and the dreams and longings of Israel are fulfilled, that the kingdom of God enters the world in a new and fresh way, that the story changes, it pivots in this moment, and yet people still get cancer, marriages still fail, your kids still go off the rails, people still die that you love, that you prayed for. How do you hold the hopes and the dreams and the promises and the things we believe about this moment and the reality of the lives that we live and the experiences that you all walked through these doors with this morning? When we first started this church, we printed a bumper sticker that said, Permission to Question. So I want to just stop for a moment and say that I would be disingenuous, and I think we are disingenuous when we sort of just skate through Advent with all of the, it's the most wonderful time of the year, count your blessings with Bing Crosby but we're not honest about the fact that some of you have deep pain and you brought it here this morning. The pastor may have deep pain and he may have brought it here this morning. So how do you hold those things that you believe to be true that you've witnessed with your own lives and your own eyes. I've prayed for people and watched them be healed. I've seen marriages be resurrected. I've seen people who were dying, literally and figuratively, who have been brought back to life and their lives are like filled with hope and life and light. I've seen it. I'll testify to it. And yet, we hold some of these things. And so sometimes when you go to religious communities, people in my position say to you, you should pray more or you don't have enough faith, or it's something that you've done that... And I would just say that's a disservice, and it's disingenuous, and it's not helpful, and it's most of the time almost, if not always, not true. But I also can't fix it. And so this morning, if just for a minute, I'm going to just sit with you all and say, like, I have all kinds of questions that I don't have answers to. And I believe this story and I've witnessed it, and it's, it's like truer than true. And yet, here are our hearts with longings and hopes and dreams that may never be fulfilled. What do we do with that? Because there's nobody up there that's going to answer us, not going to answer me. And I don't know about you, but like, this is where theology matters. The idea of the incarnation, that God has chosen to become one of us, and says, Emmanuel. You know love because it's been embodied by somebody. You know grace because someone, a human, has offered it to you. You know truths about the divine because people incarnated them. And so what do we do when we have these questions and we come to these texts and we say, I believe this is true, and yet, community, incarnation, Emmanuel, becomes all the more important. And so my answer to your question, or the answer to my own question this morning, is I don't know sometimes, but I'm glad that you're here with me, and I hope that you're glad that I'm here with you and that we're together. The last thing I want to sort of pull out of this passage in this picture is this, this, these words that Simeon and Anna both use. One says the consolation of Israel and the other says the redemption of Jerusalem. So these people are waiting for something. They're hoping for something. They're longing for something to happen and they believe that God will do it. That God will bring it. That God will console, comfort, carry uh, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people and that God will redeem and restore this Jerusalem, this city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. In the icon, both Simeon and Anna, they're waiting in the temple. The place where you would go to hear these stories, that you would read these texts, Anna is actually holding the scroll, if you notice. She's holding a scroll. Is it Isaiah? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Ezekiel? Is it the Psalms? Is it the prophet? We don't know. But she's holding a text, a sacred text that would have been read, that would have said things like, God will return to Zion. What will it mean when God returns to Zion? What will it mean when God will become king again and rule and reign on a kingdom that will not end? What will it mean that God will send another prophet like Moses to lead the people on an exodus journey? What will it mean when uh, it says a light will shine in darkness and in despair? Here's what Advent, and I think Christmas, reminds us of. Interestingly, God answers the suffering of Israel. He consoles Israel This thing that Simeon speaks about, not by making it go away, but rather by entering the suffering himself. God's answer is not, and makes it goes away. God's answer is that God enters the suffering with the people. God enters the story as a human, as one of us. And this is the profound and incomprehensible mystery of the Christian story and of Advent, that God does not defeat death and darkness by bombs and war and power and might, but by solidarity and incarnation. Can I say that again? God does not answer the question and beat and defeat death and dying by bombs and power and guns and war, but by solidarity and incarnation. I am with you! God becomes suffering. God defeats death by dying. God exposes darkness by entering it. And in this mythic moment, and by myth I mean like bigger than true, not untrue in any sense of the word, but in this moment, confirms what we know is true deep down inside of us that we, I would say, has to be true or we all have no hope, which is the fact that in the spiritual journey, when you get all the way to the bottom and you go to the deepest depths of darkness and the coldest of nights, in this moment, when death and evil will say, you are alone, in fact, things will have just begun. Because this is where it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be Light, and there was light. And God sees the light and draws it forth from the darkness and says, I see you, there you are, let's go. This is the story, and I, I, I will testify to it to my dying day that I have seen it in my life and in lives of people in this community over and over and over, that when the, when the dark gets the darkest and when the cold gets the coldest, that it's that place, it's actually in that place where new things begin, where birth happens, where something, a flash, a flicker, a glimmer, a hope, rises up, and God says, there you are, I see you, and something new begins. And it is a mystery, and it is good news for a people who have been walking in darkness and in despair, a light has shone. This is Advent, this is Christmas. So may you be reminded that wherever it is that you've come from this morning and whatever darkness you may have walked in here with, that this is a story that says that when evil and death says you're done, the story is actually just getting started. So hold on. Emmanuel, you are not alone. We are not alone. This thing does not end in death. It might look like it sometimes, but just hang on. So take heart, my friends. One has come who has overcome the world and has beaten death by dying. I mean, it doesn't get more poetic than that. Pray with me, if you will. God, I pray that in this moment, as we sit quietly and in silence, for just a moment or two, that you would remind us that we are not alone, that death does not win. that you are at work, you are moving, you are hovering like a mother over a newborn that's about to be birthed. So may it be true in us. Holy Spirit, here we are. Speak to us, we pray. My friends, I would say this to you as you go. Uh, some people have said to me, "Micah, like, how how does can do like altar calls? You know, like where you just ask people to follow Jesus." And I would say, to those of you who ever wondered that question, here it is. Jesus says it's this way: follow me. And if you want to do that, then I would say do it with your life. Start following. Be a part of a community that affirms that idea, and follow together. So if you want that. And start walking. Take one step in faith towards Jesus who says, this is the way home. It's this way to life. It's this way to hope. It's this way to abundance and benevolence and beauty and love. I'll lead you. So that's what we're doing. I don't know if you know this, but the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his his face upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord lifts up his countenance to you and he offers you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. 2 and 4 and 11 on Christmas Eve. 2, 4 and 11. Okay. No 930. 2, 4 and 11. See you next Sunday. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.